Hi, Wizzes, and welcome to episode 232 of the Food Bizways podcast. My name is Gabby, and I'm the student success coordinator here at Retail Ready and Food Bizways. I help with the behind the scenes work here at Food Bizways and support students with their questions inside of our private Retail Ready student community. All right, so in this original recipe series, if this is your first time listening in, we pick relevant episodes both from the questions that we see coming up from brands right now and also from whatever might be happening when we re air the episode. Now, at the time of re-airing, we're actually in the second week of February. February is Black History and Futures Month, and we wanted to reshare our episode with Ibrahim Basir, the CEO and founder of A Dozen Cousins. It's a great name. It's really fun to say. So if you're not familiar with A Dozen Cousins, it is a CPG brand creating delicious, and I mean really delicious, packaged beans, rices, and sauces that are inspired from Black and Latino recipes from throughout the Americas. Ibrahim's work in building a dozen cousins shows what's possible when creating a brand that focuses on, on serving and reflecting communities of color's food heritages. Ibrahim shares multiple gems of wisdom, including how he has been able to grow and to scale a dozen cousins while still centering his values and working with a talented team from, of people from different backgrounds. He also talks about how emphasizing retail first has truly benefited the brand and ways that you can use specific talents, your specific talents, and experiences to support your own CPG brand's growth and journey. All right, Wizzes, so I love, love, love this episode, and I can't wait for you to listen in. So let's get started. I'm Allie Ball, former grocery buyer and retail store manager turned wholesale consultant. In my role on the retail floor, I saw delicious, values-driven brands fail on our shelves simply because they didn't understand the behind the scenes of wholesale. I created the Food Biz Whiz podcast to give you hard-to-access insight from my career in the food industry and the tools and strategies to help you succeed on retail shelves. If you're a committed food founder who's looking to create and grow a packaged products business that positively impacts our food system, puts wealth back into your own hands, and employs members of your local community, you have found the right podcast. Let's do this. Before we get further in the episode, I've got a free resource that builds on today's show. It's the mini version of my reorder checklist. We all know it's one thing to land on a new retail shelf, and it's a whole other thing to make sure you're selling through once you're there. In my mini reorder checklist, you'll learn the key ways to onboard a new retailer so that you're much, much more likely to get those reorders coming in fast. Grab the Cliff Notes version of our reorder checklist in our show notes, or if you're a retail ready student who's listening, find our long form version and our training directly on our course platform. Hi, Ibrahim. Welcome to the Food BizWiz podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. I am, I'm really excited for this conversation. And I have to admit to you that we were brainstorming podcast guests earlier this year, and your name came up over and over again. I put you on my vision board. You were, you were right at the top of the list. And then magically, you showed up in my inbox and... I'm so excited that it's finally coming to fruition. Thank you for being well, I appreciate here. appreciate that. I'm, I'm very flattered. So thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, so if our listeners have never heard about you, they never heard of A Dozen Cousins, give us the 60-second overview of who, who you are and what is A Dozen Cousins. 
Uh, yeah, A Dozen Cousins is a natural food brand. We make meals and side dishes that are inspired by traditional Creole, Caribbean, and Latin American dishes. Uh, we really have three main product platforms. So the first uh, are seasoned beans. They're all fully cooked and seasoned, made with real vegetables and spices and cooked in avocado oil. Uh, we have a line of rices that are cooked in bone broth. They have seven grams of protein and a few grams of collagen. Um, and then we have a line of cooking sauces that allow you to make a restaurant quality dish in 20 minutes or less. Um, and the brand is really um, inspired by my own family and you know the way that we used to eat growing up. You know, I grew up in Brooklyn and this kind of black and Latino melting pot. And so we ate a ton of, of foods from that region. And um, that's really what inspired the brand. Yeah. Okay. And how long have you been in business? We sold our first bean in January of 2019. So we just passed four years of time in market. Okay. January 2019, like one year before pandemic hit and everything got shook up. So you had one year under your belt until, you know, before COVID um, changed a lot of things in our industry. Wow. Yeah, it's been a crazy couple of years, and I feel like we've operated the business in probably three or four distinct macroeconomic environments, mm -hmm. societal environments, if you will. And it has felt very much like different eras of the business. But, um, you know, thankfully, we're still growing and, and having fun with it. Yeah. Okay. And four years. So at the end of the podcast, we'll talk a little bit about what's next for A Dozen Cousins. But give me, I want to kick off with a, a couple of questions about your background in food and how how you decided to start a dozen cousins in the first place. So tell me tell me how you got on this path and what you did before you started a dozen cousins. Yeah, so I mean going back to the the, the real beginning a little bit, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn um, in a really big family. So I have nine siblings, 11 nieces and nephews, and then when my eldest daughter was born, she was the 12th cousin, which is of course <laughs> Where, where the brand gets its name from. But, you know, I'm going back there just to say, like, I've been a, a foodie and a lover of food really my entire life. You know, in a family of our size, food played a really important role just in terms of celebrating holidays, getting together at the end of the day. It was a reward when you did good at school. It was a gift on your birthday, right? Like, so I've always had this connection to food and, and knew that I wanted to work in the industry. Um, fast forward many years, I got my MBA from Wharton and I actually started my career working at General Mills. Um, so the okay. very, very first business I ever worked on was Gushers, Fruit Roll-Ups and Fruit by the Foot, <laughs> uh, which was a dream for me at the time. I loved, I love fruit snacks, still do love fruit yeah. snacks. Um, and, you know, I had a chance to work on a number of different businesses during my time at General Mills. Eventually I had a chance to work on the Annie's business. Uh, which is, of course, an organic kids brand. They were based out in Berkeley at the time that General Mills acquired that business. And I had a chance to move out to Berkeley and, and spend two years working on the brand. And so uh, it was during that time that I really fell in love specifically with the natural product world. You know, I would say prior to that, um, worked on a lot of conventional businesses and, yeah. you know, slowly went on this journey of just learning more and more about ingredients, sourcing, health and wellness, the role that food plays on your body, on mm -hmm. Um, you know, on the planet, so on and so forth. And so, you know, I fell in love with the ethos of the natural product world. But the thing that was still missing for me was this element of culture and joy that I had with food growing up. You know, uh, food for me was never just about fueling your body. It was also about, you know, as I mentioned, this connection to your people, the places that are special to you, so on and so forth. So I felt like there was an opportunity to create a brand that brought those two worlds together. 
you know, and that was just as much about high quality ingredients and great innovation as it was cultural authenticity mm-hmm. and celebrating kind of the people and the places that, that make the food special. And so that, that's what gave birth to a dozen cousins. And, you know, we launched with beans as our very first product. It felt very symbolic of what we were trying to do and, and to that beans are a very healthy food, but they also taste great. Um, and there's a lot of um, cultural and emotional content there as well. Yeah, because I mean, let's be honest, even four years ago, I mean, even today, the natural products industry is pretty homogenous. It's, you know, filled with middle-aged white dudes and not much diversity in our natural products industry. So I feel like it was a it was right time, right place. Like we were we were ready for it. Yeah, I agree, man. It's been, you know, it's been very beautiful. Honestly, it's been 180 in terms of when I first launched the business, a lot of the initial feedback that we got, whether it was investors, retail buyers, et cetera, was like, is there a demand for global cuisine at scale? Will this be too niche? Um, You know, will people pay a premium for these foods, right? Versus today, we, you know, I feel like there's broad acceptance that, oh yeah, we, we need more global cuisine. The country is changing. Demographics are shifting. We need to lean into these spaces. And so, you know, as an entrepreneur, on the one hand, it's very rewarding, right? That I think the thing that we saw a few years ago has now become much more popular or much more common knowledge or common belief. So that's been really rewarding. But to your point, there's still a long way to go in terms of like actualizing that across supermarkets, across the country. But uh, I think we're- Oh, we're, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you're right. Like it, it has changed a lot in four years, but there's- there's so much change that's still needed. We're just scratching the surface there. For sure. I agree with that. I have a question for you. So for our listeners who are like, well, Ibrahim, you have experience at General Mills and then you worked at Annie's, like, no duh, you were able to launch a national brand. Like you have all of this experience. I'm a food founder who is coming from an entirely different industry, or I have I have zero ex- experience in a larger food brand. What would you say to to an entrepreneur who doesn't who doesn't have that same experience that you did, but really wants to get their their brand to a national level? You know, I say a few things. It's a great question. You know, first and foremost, I would just say like respect. You know what I mean? I have mm-hmm. I have so much um, admiration for the founders, many of whom I know and and you know work with today or know today that came from like you said a totally different industry, totally different. Um, skill set, and they've been able to build really successful brands in our space. And there are many people who fit that that profile. And so, first, I do have a lot of respect for them because it is a it can be a difficult industry. There's a lot of tribal knowledge. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things that you kind of have to learn along the way. And so, the fact that people when they have been able to do it from a clean sheet of paper, I have a ton of respect for them. Right? I do think having the advantage of you know, I have la- I had launched products before I started a dozen cousins. I had pitched retailers before. And now I yeah. I had designed packages before. Right? So some of those big building blocks were things that I had experience with. Um, the thing I'll say on the flip side of that, though, is that everyone has some experience, right? We've all been alive and on earth and observing and living. And so even though people might not have the industry experience, like there are people I know who have just such a great artistic or creative sense about brand building, right? There are people who are quote unquote novices to marketing, but their social media is better and far more engaging than ours. You know what I mean? It's like people have innate innate skills and talents that they bring from either their lived experience or their former work experience. And so I guess the second thing I would say is just like, don't discount those skills, right? Whether that means you're just a really analytical person who's great at data, you know, and you're coming from a data or engineering background, you know, that if you're an artist or 
a, a, a singer or, you know, and you have a way with words and a way with, um, with content, leverage that. So just use the tools that you have. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so motivational to, to recognize that we all have some sort of talent that can be applied to starting a business, whether you're that, yeah, that uh, influencer or community organizer or uh, accountant or whatever it is, use that in your food business. You don't have to have that experience of big food just to to start a national brand. For sure. I'm curious about your decision to go retail first, especially, I mean, I guess you did it pre-pandemic, right? When we, there wasn't such an emphasis on direct-to-consumer and e-commerce. But Ibrahim, tell me a little bit about that thought process and and how you made the decision to be a retail first brand from, from the get-go. Yeah, you know, I'll be honest, at the time, it felt like a very easy decision. It was really based mm-hmm. on two things, you know, first and foremost, and again, this data might no longer be valid, but back in 2018, 2019, 90% of all food was sold at a brick and mortar location, yeah. right? And yeah. so that to me was like, okay, good. I don't have a ton of money. I don't have a ton of resources. Where am I going to focus my energy on the 90% or the 10%, right? Right, right. Focus on the 90% and that that felt logical. And then, you know, the second thing I would say is that at the time, and this is something I still believe even to this day, when it comes to food and beverage, there is utility in retail in the sense that it's easier and a more joyful experience for people to buy 15, 20 different products all in one place than it is for them to go to 20 different websites and buy one item, right? Now that, you know, there are digital retailers that of course help solve that problem. Places like Thrive, Amazon, Hungry Root, a lot of these places that we do sell online. So it doesn't have to only be brick and mortar, but there is still a benefit to bundling that I felt like was true then. And I still think is true today Um, because in this category, it's not like clothing or footwear where, you know, me personally, half of my sneakers are are Nike. They're all just one brand, right? Right. That's not the case for food and beverage. Most people have, you know, 30, 40 different brands in their home at a given time across their pantry, their refrigerator, et cetera. So uh, it just made sense. Well, and I think it's different too. Using that shoe example, you know, I'm like, I buy a pair of shoes. I mean, maybe I'm not the, the a great example here, but I buy a pair of shoes every couple months, right? And I buy my beans twice a week, and so there's something very different. That different experience going to, let's say, a dozen cousins' website directly every Monday and Friday to buy beans. I'm frankly, I'm not going to do it. Versus going to, uh, you know, one of my favorite brands shoe brands directly every every other month and buying a pair, right? That's right. And I think, you know, to that point, just maybe you'll close out my thoughts on that. This particular question, like there are some brands for whom like B2C makes a ton of sense, right? Either yes. people meeting it frequently, uh, the shipping costs are low, the purchase cycles are long, however you want to articulate it. For yeah. us, it's just never the case. So we are, we're like a proudly retail first brand. Yes. Okay. You are speaking my language because obviously, you know, I am I'm a big, big advocate for retail when it makes sense for for brands. Okay, so you've got this brand, you have launched it. And when you when you initially launched it, tell me about this or tell me about the growth over the past few few years. I'm curious about the retail expansion and I'm curious about the team growth. So where did you start in retail and how many team members did you have? Uh, we started in retail in you know year one about 
500 to 750 doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we launched nationwide with Whole Foods in our first year. So that was a big, um, wow. big chunk of that. And at the time, it was just one employee. So I was the only full-time employee of the company at that time. Yes. Okay. We wow. With a number of, you know, external resources. So we had a sales broker. We had a, um, a fractional accountant who kind of managed the books. We had a fractional supply chain manager that made, made sure POs showed up where they were. So, you know, there were other people supporting the business, but in terms of full-time employees, uh, it was just myself. Okay. Yeah. That. That's a lot. It's a lot, Ibrahim, to to grow a business so rapidly by yourself. Um, it was a lot. Thankfully, I have a very supportive wife, and um, you know, we made it work. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's talk. Let's talk about team. I know when we were prepping for this interview, you you said the team team is a really huge part of your success, and you talked a little bit about your values in building the team. So can let's back up a second and, and talk about values first. So what are some of the values that A Dozen Cousins stands for? Uh, well, our values as a brand, first and foremost, is number one, you know, we want to celebrate culture, right? That's the, the reason the brand exists ultimately is so that we can, you know, honor the people and the places that make these foods special. And we try to have that come across in everything we do from the team to our content, et cetera. Um, second is, you know, to, to enable wellness and to enable people to eat better and to live better lives. You know, I think again, particularly in the communities that we pull our foods from, you know, we suffer disproportionately from food related illnesses, whether that's high blood pressure, diabetes, hypertension, fill in the blank. And so it's really important to me that our products, um, are truly wholesome and not like just, you know, kind of better than the other stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. be pound for pound, some of the healthiest foods on the planet. So wellness is an important value of ours. And then just an element of joy, you know, like as a brand, I think a lot of the topics and things that we delve delve into, whether that is health and wellness, cultural appropriation, so on and so forth, they could become very weighty and heavy topics. And we try to keep it light. You know, at the end of the day, food is fun for us. It's something that we enjoy eating. It's a way that connects us to our family. So those are some of the, um, you know, the broad values that I think about us as a brand. And then, of course, as I think about the way we want to operate as a team, um, there's some overlaps, but there's some other things, you know, like we hire, for example, for very conscientious people. We like people who take their job seriously. If they say they're going to do something, they do it. Uh, we love to hire learners, people who are constantly looking around the corner to see what's next, what's changing in the world, um, people that acknowledge the fact that the world is changing quickly. Um, and then finally, of course, people who are just really culturally connected. You know, that's an important part of our brand. We, you know, we would n- never hire someone who is like scared to try a new dish or hates to travel. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that's probably not the type of person who is going to bring the brand to life in the in the best way um, and to fit into the team here. Yeah. And how do, how do you find those people? How do you approach, you know, recruitment and and hiring to reflect these these values of yours? Yeah, you know, there's a few things I would say. First and foremost is uh, we have, and I'll speak for myself, first and foremost, just a different mindset in terms of talent itself. You know, when I was working at a large company, I do think at times it's easy to feel like when you extend someone a job offer, you're doing them a favor, right? Mm -hmm. Like, hey, here's a salary, here's a benefit package. You get to work at this company with this brand on your resume. Like, you should be thankful to me. And I think Mm -hmm when you're at a startup is kind of the exact opposite, right? It's like, I feel like people are doing me a service when they come join our team 
and they dedicate their time, their effort, their energy to us, you know? So I think first and foremost, there's just a, a hope of very different tone in terms of how we recruit people. It's like every interview is mutual. You know, I want them to feel like this company is a good fit for them. My leadership is the type under which they'll thrive. They're excited about the responsibilities that they have. And then likewise, of course, I'm evaluating them to see if they can do the job that they're being paid for. They feel like they will be a good fit to the team, et cetera. So I feel like they, the interview process ended up feeling a lot more conversational and balanced than I have experienced in the past. So that's one thing I would say just like to set the stage, right? I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. secondly is just being very mindful of what we're looking for, right? So as you know, I articulate a few what some of our values are, and then during the interview process, I'm looking out for them, right? So if you're seven minutes late to every interview with a different excuse, you're probably not a highly conscientious person. You know what I mean? Why not that detail oriented, right? Um, If I ask you questions about, you know, what you do outside of work and, you know, you're kind of hemming and hawing, you may or may not be that curious of a person. You may or may not be that culturally connected. If I ask you, hey, what's the last book you read or the last movie you watched? You don't have an answer, right? So I think it's really just like aligning our interview process and the questions that we ask with the things we're trying to learn, you know? Um, we're not asking people a lot of random questions just to throw them off. It's like, we want to, we have objectives that we're trying to get to. And then the last thing I'll say on the topic of of team is just like diversity is very important to us. Right. Um, you know, uh, we today have hundred percent of our team comes from a minority or multi-ethnic background. Over 80% of our team is either black or Latino. Um, you know, those things might not be true forever. Right. We might not Mm -hmm. with statistics quite that high, but uh, I do think it's important to us that these are people who have a real connection to the foods that we make. They understand the importance of showing up with these types of dishes at a Whole Foods, right? They understand, hey, what does the copywriting need to sound like? Hey, that might be a little bit offensive. Hey, we have that right. Hey, here's this is not how Mexican people talk about Cinco de Mayo, right? Like all the, like, mm-hmm. the nuance that I think a lot of brands miss. It's very easy to solve for when it's like, oh, look, this is the stuff my family used to do, or, hey, I'm that person you're talking to, or I'm that person you're talking about. So um, I'll pause there, but hopefully that all that all answers your question. It does. And, they, you know, where my, my brain is going is that there, I imagine there's this fine line between creating a team culture that is gosh, like culturally diverse. And yet everyone, the people share these values that that you're you're hoping to have at a dozen cousins. And also not feeling like you have, you know, the token Mexican person on your team, the token black person on your team who can answer questions about, you know, this holiday or that holiday. Like how do you how do you balance that where you want that diverse team, but you're not like then like assigning folks roles in your company? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think, um, and hopefully I'm not going to give an overly simplistic answer, but I do think it starts with me, right? In the sense that I'm an African-American man. I started this company for a very specific reason. And I think people know my intentions and my motivations when I started the company, right? It wasn't just to check some marketing objectives. It's like these, the the little kids drawn on the back of the package are my actual nieces and nephews. Mm -hmm. Even if met them, they've come into the office, Mm -hmm. interned here over the summer, right? So yeah. they know that this is this is real and this is genuine, right? That's the first thing yeah. I would say. Secondly, and again, this is I'll speak a little bit broadly, so I acknowledge that I can't speak for all people, but I would say like many people who come from a diverse background are proud of that. And it's part of yeah. who they are. And it's part of 
the way they live, the way they speak, the way they eat, you know, the way they show up in the world. And so most of the time, all we want is for other people to respect that and to honor it and not to belittle it and not to put it in a box. And so because we're not doing those things, I think people are very happy to share who they are and talk about, hey, this is my mom's recipe for this particular dish, or here's how we celebrate this holiday, right? And we're all receiving it as like, this is a full human being and not just, as you said, our token fill in the blank, you know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Great. Thank you. That's that's a really helpful answer. So when you think about team culture, how do you balance that? How do you ensure that your team members are happy and joyful and also that work gets done? It it feels like it, it sometimes in companies, these things can feel like they're at odds. Yeah, that's a great question. It's not, you know, I'll be honest and say like, probably I've been better at this at some times than others. Tell you where I'm where I'm at today is first and foremost, the joy has to come from the work. You know what I mean? Like they can't be two separate things. It can't be the case that I hate I hate what I have to do for my job, but we get to have fun on Fridays or you know, we get to have fun once a month. Like that's not sustainable, right? And so yeah. to me, it's like, okay, what are things that makes people that make people's work joyful? It is number one, it's aligned to a larger mission or a larger vision. They know what they're laddering up to. They have good autonomy over their work to the appropriate degree, right? So they're not just following orders. They get a chance to weigh in and shape the work and the role in the future of their particular desk, right? Um, you know, they have the tools and the resources they need to do their job, right? They're not being asked to do two weeks worth of work in a day. You know what I mean? There's realistic deadlines and goals. Like all those things to me are so much more important in terms of like, people's day-to-day enjoyment of their work than the 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 one-off, you know, the ping pong tables, the classic example that right. people use. But, you know, there's even, there's many outings that they're just, they're not going to make up for that first group being out of whack, right? If people don't feel like I have the uh, clarity on my job, I have the resources to do it, and I'm like proud of the work, nothing will overcome that. I think right. other things can be really great enhancements and we utilize them as well, right? Where it's like, yeah, people do want to get to know their coworkers. They do want an opportunity to laugh. They do want an opportunity to, you know, let their hair down a little bit to to, to see each other in different settings. And so, you know, what we do, we have basically like a hybrid work model. So the team is all here in our office one week every month. And during that week, we're just really focused on team building, right? We have lunch together every day. We have guest speakers come in and talk about their brands and businesses. Uh, we do competitive product tastings. We visit different locations if it makes sense to do so. Maybe there's a new uh, restaurant or store that opened up in the area. So we take that time to bond and to get to know each other. And then the next three weeks, we can just kind of rip and run and focus on on work. I like that hybrid model. So one week on and then the rest of the month off. How how many people do you have at this point? Uh, we have six full-time employees. Six full-time. Okay, cool. Um, and I imagine too, you bring the, it has a, again, it goes back to hiring and making sure that when you are hiring that, that employee, that they are going to find joy from the work itself. And that they, that is, that's one of the, the most important aspects of it. And that's, that's what fulfills them first and foremost. And then the lunches together and the team building and the, the in-person stuff, that's just icing on the cake. For sure, man. I think I think that's very well said. Like at the end of the day, there are many people for whom our company would not be a good fit, would not enjoy working here. I probably wouldn't enjoy them being on the team. And that's great. Goal is to find all of that stuff out before 
an offer is extended and before an offer is accepted, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, we we work with a recruiter for hiring. And one of the things that she's really taught us is that we want to almost like repel people from our brand just, you know, from Food Biz With just as much as we want to attract the right people. And we can do that, you know, on our website. We can do that through our social profiles. We do it on the job description itself. And then people will know whether or not they're the right the right fit for us and and what we stand for in the food industry. For sure. I think it's really smart. Yeah, this is this is all Cindy, not me. I'll give credit to our recruiter. <laughs> so, Ibrahim, I have a couple more questions for you. And I, I just want to dig into the values piece uh, a bit more, especially for our listeners who feel like the food industry is really hard. Again, you know, it's changing, but the food industry historically have, has been really homogenous. It can be challenging to, to make money and it can be challenging to create a product at the price point that you want that is still of a certain caliber or the, you know, the ingredients that you want. And oftentimes we work with food, food founders who feel like they have to compromise on their values. Have you ever felt like you've had to compromise on your values at a dozen cousins? Man, that's a great question. I, w- I will say, have I had to compromise in general, yes, right? Like yeah. there's a yeah. gold standard Cadillac version of every idea that I've ever had. Mm-hmm. And it almost never, the final version is almost <laughs> delivered 100% on that, right? Yeah. Now, what I would say is important is like to prioritize, right? There are some things that you have to draw a box around and say, we're 100% never going to do that, right? So it's around like food safety, dishonesty, lack of uh, integrity and in how we do business, like those things need to be in a red red box that it's like, okay, those are values we're never going to touch. We're never going to violate. You know, I'd rather not sell the product than to go against one of those things, right? And then you have to kind of move on down the list, right? There are some things that are really important and there are some things that are just nice to have. And there are some things where it's like, hey, flip a coin. You know what I mean? Um, you go either way. And so I feel like I, ma- I manage those trade-offs every single day, right? Where it's like, okay, even sometimes it's just a question of the timeline. It's like, all right, do you want to do do it this way in six months or do it tomorrow like this, you know? And and you have to make those trade-offs. So I, I just think having a um, a clear understanding of what's hands-off versus like, hey, where am I willing to 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 move and deal and wheel, if you will, then that that's really important. Yeah, I hear you saying that. It's essentially for our listeners, they are, they need to bullet point out their non-negotiables. And these are the things that they are not willing to compromise on. And then, like you said, go down the list from there. Here are the things that, you know, oh, I could budge a little bit. And then here are the things that, you know, take it or leave it. But but starting with those non-negotiables is the thing that they can really stand in as they are faced with those tough decisions in building their brands. I think that's right. I think that's right. And, you know, um, knock on wood, we haven't had things come up where it's been a really hard decision and where we've been tempted to even go up against them. And, you know, I hope yeah. can't that we never do. But I think if we do, we, we, we know where we stand on some of those things. Yeah, absolutely. OK, I've got ch- I've got three more questions for you here. First one, I want to know, I, I, Ibrahim, I feel like you are so clear on your values and the way you talk about them and the way you're able to articulate them. You're, it, it's clear to me that you have have put in work here. And I want to know if you've had help defining your values or how did you 
How did you decide what they are? How did you how did you come up with that list of values in the first place? You know, first and foremost, thank you for saying that. I appreciate the the compliment very much. Um, there there are definitely things that I've thought about a lot, and there are definitely things that I've written down, which to me is always just an important step in the process, right? Of like, if you put it, if you commit it to page and you review it and you revise it and you revisit it, and it always it still feels good, that's usually a good sign for me. So I, you know, everything I've said on this podcast. Written in a document, you know, somewhere, right? Yeah. Um, in terms of help, I have not gotten any outside help. This is an area where, again, in full disclosure, I've done it before, right? So I've had a chance right. to work on the mission and the values of other great brands, right? Either by way of inheriting them um, or by having a chance to work on them. You know, I think working on the Annie's business, as I mentioned, was a big one. I worked on Larabar before that, another brand with really great um, set of mission and values. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, Gushers, Fruit Roll-Up, and Fruit by the Foot had a really clear set of mission and values around huh. kids' fun and creativity and enjoyment. You know what I mean? And that that brand, to me, wh- whatever you think about the question of added sugar and sugar levels and kids' kids snacks, the reality is the brand really stood for something very clear. And if you go to almost any middle school in America and, and say the word Gushers, you're going to get a clear reaction, right? <laughs> Well, yeah. um, I, you know, that's what I would say just in transparency is like I've had a chance to do it and see it done well. And so I just submitted that, hey, I want a dozen cousins to have that same type of integrity and clarity in terms of how we how we approach brand build. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And even with a Gushers example, I mean, I think it, it really highlights that values don't have to be uh, heavy and they and not everyone is going to agree with every company's values, right? Like Gushers might have the value of, you know, play and joy and sugar and <laughs> I don't know, you know, whatever their values are. But and you and I might not think that those are the best values for a food brand, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we think of their values. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the reality is like, I mean, to your point, like there is such a broad spectrum of um of product categories, of values. I do think you tend to think about mission and values really around like health and wellness, environment, sustainability. Mm-hmm. We think about a very specific and maybe somewhat narrow set of values, but that's not what every brand exists for. And I think, you know, that's fun, right? Like you said, we all get the vote with our dollars in terms of, okay, what do I want to bring into my house? What do I want to feed myself and my family? But if we're talking purely as marketers, there's really yeah. no limit on what your brand can stand for. It's just up to you to define it and then actualize, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I said that I had three questions left. So now we're down to the last two. First off, I want to know, I want to know what your favorite resources are for BIPOC food founders in our industry. No, first and foremost, in a very biased way, I have to start with Project Potluck, uh, which is a nonprofit that I sit on the board of and, you know, I'm, you know, the founder of. And it's really focused on uh, helping people of color build successful companies and careers in the CPG industry. Um, started it alongside my two fellow board members, Asha and Arnulfo, um, the CEOs of Mason Dixie and um, Alter Eco, respectively. And, you know, we started now, I guess, about three years ago, really with the goal of helping make sure that our industry looks like the rest of the country, right? Um, you know, in terms of representation by people of color. And so that organization, there's a, a digital community, a mailing list. Um, we help host events throughout the year. 
Uh, we have a mentorship program. And so that is uh, potluckcpg.org. And for sure, it's my number one uh, resource that I'll recommend to any person of color in the industry. Um, Great. Um, I'm so- going to, I'll just, I'll just emphasize that we'll, we will put that in the show notes for anybody listening. And we actually had Kathleen, Kathleen Casanova on last year on the podcast. And she came and talked about mentorship for people of color in the food industry. So I'll link up that past podcast episode with Kathleen as well in our show notes. Uh, that can be a good resource for our listeners. Thank you. What else? Just, yeah. Yeah, just to underline, Kathleen's done a tremendous job. She's the executive director of Project Potluck and has done a great job in just growing um, our membership and our programming since she joined the team last year. So I'm glad that she had a chance to speak with you. Yeah. Um, what was the other resource? Yeah. Yeah, the other resources are not specific to people of color, but that I would say like we will benefit from. And I think as others have, I think the Naturally Network is a great resource. Mm-hmm. It hosts a ton of educational events, yeah. um, you know, a ton of live events as well. So I think it's great for community building and getting to know people in the industry. Um, you know, of course, I think New Hope and what they do with uh, the expos is, is great. Um, love uh, Nosh and what they do with their live events as well. So I think, again, not, you know, not specific to just people of color, but I think a lot, one of the big barriers we face when we join the industry is just this feeling of like, okay, where do I start? Who are my people? Do I know anyone here? Are there people who look like me? And I think to the extent that we tap into some of these larger organizations and existing events and kind of create um, our own home and comfort within them, I think it'll it'll benefit us for sure. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you for that short list. We will add them all to our show, show notes. And I was over here smiling as you were listing off the names. I, I fully agree on on all the resources that you added there. So Ibrahim, I have to ask, my last question for you is, what what's coming up next for A Dozen Cousins? Anything exciting coming down the pipeline that you want to wanna spill on the podcast here? Man, first of all, we have many, many exciting things coming, most of which I cannot speak about yet. Um, I'll, I'll speak about one that's maybe in the the very recent rear view mirror, which is um, our Mama's Meal Kit, which we just launched alongside Gold and Partake in honor of Black Maternal Health Week. Um, it's something that's very near and dear to me. You know, Each year we do a social impact grant where essentially we focus on an issue that is facing communities of color. Um, we focus on different uh, socioeconomic health disparities in the U.S., and so this year we focused on the black maternal health crisis, um, you know, put very simply is that black women are three times more likely to die from childbirth or a related um, condition than their white counterparts are. And so what we did is essentially we created this meal kit. Um, on the one hand, it supports new moms. It's something that you can buy as a gift for mothers. It has some great superfood powders. It has cookies. It has a few of our products. And so it's meant to be a gift for new moms. But on the back end, the money goes towards uh, Kindred Space, which is an LA-based organization that essentially provides uh, midwifery and um, doula services for um, women of color living in Los Angeles. And they have a nonprofit arm associated with it. So I know that wasn't really a what's coming up as much as a what's in market now, but um, that's something that, again, near and dear to my heart, I want to make sure that I gave that a plug. And then other than that, I would just stay stay locked into our Instagram and our website. We do have some new items launching uh, throughout the year and a lot of cool initiatives coming up. I, I, I hear you on not wanting to spill the beans on, on some of the things coming down the pipeline. So I, I appreciate that. And I, I'm so happy to hear about your social impact grant. Um, we didn't talk about it on the podcast here, but that seems obviously like so aligned with with your your values of uh, enabling 
folks, um, particularly communities of color, um, to have access to your food, have access to wellness. Um, and you're directly doing that through a dozen cousins and the the social impact grant. Yeah, for sure. I'll give just a maybe one more bullet on yeah. where we didn't we didn't talk about it deeply, but it, it really came about in the early years or early days of the brand, really. I was talking to a good friend of mine who, you know, he challenged me on the question of Hey, if you're building this this brand and this business so that people of color can eat better and that they, people can embrace these foods of their childhood, like, okay, aren't there going to be a lot of people who can't afford your $3 or $4 beans at Whole Foods, right? Yeah. And, you know, it stuck with me, right? Obviously, on the one hand, we know we don't want to make stereotypes. The reality is there are many Black and Latino consumers that can afford to shop at Whole Foods and do mm-hmm. shop at Whole Foods and mm-hmm. embrace them and love the business that they give us. But there are people in those communities that can't afford these products. And so to me, it was important that we had, you know, another way to impact them. And that's where the grant came about, where I was like, okay, look, we're going to impact, we're going to have the most impact through our foods and our products themselves. But then we also think that we can help touch these communities through the grant, which, you know, I described. And it's, it changes every year. You know, last year we worked with a, a group called Height Club, which is an LA-based nonprofit. Yeah helps um, helps women of color get their first experiences in the outdoors. So camping, yep. hiking, backpacking, et cetera. Um, and that, again, is a big uh, socioeconomic health disparity, right? If you are black, brown, or poor in America, you're far more likely to live in an urban area, to have less access to nature, to spend less time outdoors. And so, you know, we've had a lot of fun with the grants in terms of like educating ourselves on new issues, educating our consumers on those issues. Um, and it's been really fruitful and, and rewarding. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing more about that that grant. I I'm just in in such admiration for for the brand that you've built and all of the all of the impact that you're having not only in our industry for to fellow food founders, but also clearly outside of the industry for our for our consumers as well, Ibrahim. I I really respect what you're you're building. I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you for the kind words. And uh, it was really an honor to be here. These are these are some great questions. So thank you. You're welcome. Okay. So Ibrahim, I'm going to link up all of your contact information. The The website will link, link up your social impact grant. We will make sure we've got all of those details on our show notes. We'll include Project Potluck as well, the past podcast episode with them. Um, and again, I I can't thank you enough for, for being on here today. I I really appreciate the time that you spent with us on the Food BizWiz podcast. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And my whizzes, again, thank you to our our listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode today. I have been looking forward to this episode for a long time, and I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as I did. If you are listening all the way to the end, Ibrahim and I want to know that you have stuck around. So snap a screenshot, tag me in your stories or on LinkedIn, and tell me your big takeaway. You know, I'm at It's Alley Ball, and Ibrahim's brand is A Dozen Cousins. We would love to know what inspired you, and I would love to give you a follow right back and reshare your learnings. So from here, you know the drill. If you want more values-aligned food industry conversations, send me a DM through Instagram and say hello. Click through to my LinkedIn or join us in our Food Biz Whiz Facebook group. All are linked in the show notes, as well as all of the resources mentioned from today's episode. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you right back here next week. Welcome back, Wizzes. So hearing about how Ibrahim has centered his values while still creating a thriving national business has been one of my top favorite uh, food business episodes that we've ever done on the podcast. And I'm so thankful to you for, to you for having listened in, and I hope that you were able to 
feel as equally as inspired as I was from listening to it. All right, guys, so you can probably guess what I'm going to say next here. Uh, I know Ali has mentioned it, and I'll mention it again, but one of our 2024 goals for the podcast is to feel more connected to our listeners. That's you. So we'd love to connect with you further and continue the conversations started in these episodes. And we want to know what piece of Ibrahim's wisdom has inspired or impacted you the most. So go ahead and DM us over on Instagram or on LinkedIn or both. And you can find those links in our full show notes to go ahead and connect with us further. All right, guys, for now, we will be back in your earbuds or your speaker next week. And we hope that you have a great rest of your week. Bye. Thanks for listening to Food Biz Wiz. If you're enjoying this podcast and the tools it gives you for growing your packaged product business, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. From one small business owner to another, I am deeply grateful for your support of this podcast, and I appreciate it when you share it with your fellow food founders, share it on social media, or leave me a review on your listening platform. Ready for more? Find out how we can work together at foodbizwiz.com. I'll see you right back here next week.